Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest on the program is Carm Taglienti, Distinguished Engineer and Product Portfolio Director at Insight, a leading IT solutions provider that specializes in streamlining enterprise data infrastructure. Carmen joins us on today's podcast to talk about some of the challenges organizations face both in laying the groundwork for AI transformation from scratch and developing existing systems in a way that avoids technical debt. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thank you so much, Carm, for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So taking it from the top, what are the best strategies for building AI infrastructure that you see in the sectors where you have use cases? That's a really interesting question. And because of the fact that it's not easy to do. So I think in a lot of ways, when we think about building an AI infrastructure, normally we would think about things like models and you know how do we create a cool model that's gonna allow us to be able to realize some value within the organization or create competitive advantage. But fundamentally, it's mostly about the data, which is interesting. So when I think about infrastructure, I usually think about building up the data assets and the data assets really allow us to figure out what data do we want to store? Where do we store it? And in what form do we store it? And there are a lot of different facets that are associated with that. And some of them I think we're going to get into as part of the conversation. But I think fundamentally, it's sort of the, how do I get the data I need? How do I know that it's fit for purpose? And then how do I move forward? Of course. And when you're designing these systems, you want them to fit the organization, but you don't want them to be bespoke to the point where they instantly become dated or there's this kind of unplanned obsolescence. Tell us about kind of the challenges that you you see when structures kind of outlive their purpose and it kind of loses the sight of business leadership that they need to be updated or at least streamlined or like when there's kind of like a fat to that technical debt as it gets called. Right. Yeah, I was just going to say that. So it's yeah, what you're describing is is really this idea of the fact that because we have had something historically, that should be what we use moving forward. But in a lot of ways, we have to think about the time at which the particular data asset or infrastructure was created. And unfortunately, you know, during the time at which you know we were looking to provide value of our data, we might have written our code or our architecture might have been written quickly and without a lot of focus on the future. And so that contributes to this technical debt concept. So when I mentioned fit for purpose earlier, that's a really important characteristic. So mm-hmm. we really do have to go back and look at how much of the data is really valid or valuable to us moving forward. And, and then to look at what some of the strategies might be for allowing us to create that the set of data that we would require in order to allow us to be able to realize the benefit of AI within our organization. Yes, I think from here, it's wise to start with kind of where businesses will be, you know, with their tech stacks. And that's either, you know, starting from some sort of scratch or, you know, some sort of typical array of of apps and, and data lakes, maybe some third vendors that they're using, you know, for different digital based tasks. And then there's those with existing infrastructure. But let's let's get to those in a minute. Let's say we're starting from scratch. What are some of the challenges or or what's a typical sort of front door? use case that in the area of technical debt, or at least infrastructure, that leads to kind of a wider understanding of how 
AI infrastructure really fits hand in hand with company goals? Right. Yeah. Great question. So that where we we typically see customers struggling is where do we start? Because it's when you look at it, there's a lot of sort of fanfare about what is AI and and then so when you start to dig in a little bit more deeply, then you say, okay, that's great. I could do all kinds of really cool analysis, but maybe I don't have the data. So now all, all of a sudden I have to build out a data infrastructure. So I think in a, a good place to start, what makes things kind of easy is if you're using existing products, for example, PaaS or SaaS services that you already have or own, you can leverage some of the AI services that they provide. For example, something like Salesforce would apply some AI services to help you understand right. your customer base a little bit more effectively. So that's a good entree into this whole concept to really just sort of dip your toe in the water and then think more deeply about how do I create a program which allows me to then be able to do this in a more effective way. Of course, of course. Now, even where they're starting the project, I mean, I don't want to create the impression, especially for new time listeners, that this is something you can do, you know, you can just go find a vendor and then, you know, wash your hands, job job is mm-hmm. done. There's usually some sort of team built in in-house to an organization, always monitoring these things, always, you know, considering the long-term implications from AI on the business side. Usually IT is you know, if done correctly, becomes a bridge for that sort of thing. I've never seen a situation where where a vendor is kind of left completely to their own devices, especially with, you know, an AI initiative that is so inherent to the business. So maybe something to explain might be how do teams grow alongside with that infrastructure, especially for in-house or in-house operations that need to build these systems from scratch themselves. What, right. What? How do the teams change with the project? Yeah, exactly. It, and it's um, you know, it's funny. I I like to think about this as a culture of analytics. And so most organizations, certainly over the last decade, have become more data-driven organizations. And so understanding the real value of data allows you to be able to look at the things that you might be implementing and then really put that lens on them around well, how much value am I getting out of this data? Or what is the asset that's made available to me so I can make decisions in a more effective way? And what I've seen is that when companies have a culture of analytics and sort of learning as you go, as you mentioned earlier, it becomes a a model where people are interested in participating in the overall process. And so it's creating their own services or using low-code, no-code solutions, for example, to be able to create their own infrastructure, to be able to do the analysis on their own. And so it really sort of opens this door to how do I take advantage of the infrastructure and services that are made available to me to become more impactful to the organization? And just turning our attention to businesses with a kind of an existing infrastructure, this is going to be a lot more sectors like FinServe, legacy institutions where they're already kind of collecting the data they haven't, they've had to usually build these systems in-house. Well, tell us more about those sectors as, as you see them. What are their typical challenges? One of the things that we see a lot in those sectors is everybody seems to be doing a good job of collecting data these days, or at least understanding that this information could be valued to me in the future, and they put it someplace. And so now what we see is this concept of dark data. So how do we shine a light on it? How do we allow ourselves to be able to take advantage of those data assets? And there are a couple of ways that we can think about doing that. The first one is to engage with our IT teams in order to help us to understand, well, how do we inventory what information might be available and then produce things like metadata so that we can say, well, these are the data assets that we have and here's what's included in them. 
and then make that available to the consumers or the people in the business that are, will use that information. And then from there, then usually it's sort of the sky's the limit. So once people understand that data is available, then they can use a wide variety of different tools, whether they're AI tools or even BI tools or even Excel for that matter, to be able to extract and access that data and then really realize the value of that information in terms of driving the business forward. But that's a hard thing to do. So to create the sort of service orientation related to underlying data. But like I said before, usually organizations are really good at collecting data, not so good at being able to make it available to the people that really need it. Yes. And if we could provide a, a more concrete definition for dark data, it might be the first time a lot of our listeners are are hearing of this. Got it. Yeah. So I like to use the term dark data, and I think it's been around for a little while, but basically it's data that's sort of sitting you know, on systems that's been tucked away someplace and nobody really uses it or is, it, or is even aware that it's there or available. And so that's why I call it dark data because it hasn't really seen mm-hmm. the light of day. And then when it's finally made available, then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, wow, we didn't realize we had, you know, 10 years of customer data or whatever it might be. So that's the term. That's where the term dark data comes from. Oh, sure. It, it, it sounds like a formality almost, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like almost a formality of auditing because it, it maybe yeah. the equivalent in policy where kind of I, I, I come from in my background is to paraphrase Dom, Donald Rumsfeld, which is not something everybody wants to do every day, but a known unknown. You know it's over there, but you don't know what it is. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, kind of the data equivalent. But I, I know that can be especially the case for a lot of for a lot of FinServe organizations, a lot of legacy institutions, banks, where there are these pockets of data through technological transitions where we haven't all used typewriters, you know, for <laughs> 30 years. And this is all really, really raw stuff. But it, it's not always condi- conditional necessarily on it being unstructured, I take it. It's kind of a more broad definition than that. It could be very structured, but the point is, you know, it's over there, but you can't use it just yet. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's an entirely different term, right? The unstructured model. But yeah, you don't really know it's there, but usually you can find somebody within the organization that's like, I thought we captured that type of data. And then you go off on a little venture to see if you can find it. And I think that kind of sheds a light on places in FinServe where it's becoming popular or hyped to collect data. Let's let's just say, you know, customer experience, everything around the call centers that puts it under a different light because those systems are now getting more traffic than ever inside and out of quarantine and in, in pandemic. They are places where data is already running and where customers are. So they're naturally just getting those systems are getting a lot of spotlight. Where do you see the most common places for data depending on, let's let's say, financial services? Well, I think it is, like you said, it's, it's probably coming from internal systems mostly because data is being generated, it's being stored. I like to call it sort of the vapor trail of the ongoing operational processes. Certain information that might be, for example, you know, social social media data, for example, maybe new programs that are being run, you know, by a bank or financial institution, they're usually a good marketing program. And so that data is being kept and people are very aware of it, but it's all of the operational systems where that data is being generated and, and kept and tracked someplace, but it's not really being made available to the end users through like service, through a service interface, or even from a metadata and data governance perspective, People don't really know it's there. And so I think that's really the, you know, some of the gems within the environment, especially financial services, where 
you know, the business business folks don't really know that it's there and they don't know how to take advantage of it. In which case, like, what do you recommend for strategies for choosing subject matter experts that might know those places even better than business leadership who are the beginning of trying to connect those dots? Yeah. So normally it's driven from the business units. And and so again, I'll, I'll, you know, move it away from technology just a little bit, but typically sure. these kinds of things start with what is the business goal or what are, what are the business problems we're trying to solve? And then usually then when you start digging your way back into like, where is the data coming from? You uncover all of this interesting information that's made available to you. So, and I don't, I don't want to go so draconian as to say, everybody needs a data governance environment, but everybody does need a data and governance environment. So it, it basically has to do with what is the data? Who is the steward for the data? How is the data made available to us? And then how is it going to be curated? How is the data going to be kept up to date? What's its valuable lifetime? What is the asset value to the organization? And that's a really broad conversation we could probably spend hours talking about. But in general, that's how you would do it. It's sort of ensure that there's a business purpose first, and then sort of drive your way back into those operational systems because you know that that data probably exists somewhere within the organization. Of course. And what do you want to look for in a solution with you know, within AI technology, or at least how it, how it would be advertised? What are you looking for in the AI capability to build proper AI infrastructure and build those systems where you are doing proper and regular assessments on your technical debt before it gets out of hand? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I would say here again, focusing a little bit on the sort of the business side of the house, it's you know, a lot of times people think, oh, well, if I'm starting, you know, an AI program or I want to start doing more with the data I have, I have to hire a team of data scientists. Well, over the last four or five years, we've seen a lot of auto ML kinds of models coming into play or things that are low code, no code solutions by using some of these advanced features. So number one, that's a, a convenient way to put some of the power into the hands of your business users where you're not you don't have to focus as much on you know, having a PhD and you know statistical methods or even algorithmic studies, but now you can. And but from that perspective, then you get back to this concept I was talking about before, which is fit for purpose. So, from an IT perspective and an infrastructure perspective, having agility and the and the ability to adapt to the requ- the requirements of those business users. What data do I need? How do I need to present it to? my AI algorithm or to my models in order to make it effective is really critical. And so what you end up with is really this nice interplay between IT and the business, which Mm -hmm. is really about what data do you need? How can I present it to you? And then rinse and repeat. And so it's really just the agility of allowing that to happen really makes for a successful organization that's data-driven that can take advantage of these AI capabilities. Going at the heart of the fit to purpose concept that you've brought up uh, across, you know, building from scratch, building with existing infrastructure for fit to purpose. Is it about a a certain longevity? I know elsewhere in these spaces, you know, it's touted, you know, this ambition to make legacy systems from cradle to grave, you know, have them have a certain elasticity to kind of, you know, the planned obsolescence that goes into technology cycles. Is that at the heart of something here? Is that something or is fit to purpose an attempt to help systems transcend that problem or only to a point? Or is it more about taking kind of the existing systems as they are for kind of 
a one size fits all, you know, way to get started? I would say it's more of a philosophy when you think about is it fit for purpose? You would look at it from the perspective of what technologies can help me to create the kind of data that I need. And then can I automate it and make it presentable in for the time at which it's required? Because another part of what you were describing made me think of data lifecycle. Because, you know, certainly, you know, if I'm looking at tweets, for example, tweets are probably, you know, their lifetime is, you know, less than a day, probably, unless you're collecting some other kind of data. But in general, you know, you also have to think about it's not just a, I built something, therefore I'm done and I can move on. It's more of a, a this constant evolution of, you know, what data do I need and for what purposes? And then do I really understand its useful lifetime? And data is really important from that perspective to really understand how long is it really going to be valuable to me because that associates with the value proposition. But then I also have to go back and to your other point, which is the technical infrastructure that supports it. So the technical infrastructure changes. Yeah. So I think what we see is you have to be pretty agile in that way too, or it's called mechanical sympathy, replacing things with new versions in order to be able to do more with less or to even add richer kinds of attribution within your environment and making it more effective over time. So both of those right. kind of come into play. Yes. You, you mentioned the usefulness lifecycle just then also that there's a certain sensitivity in terms of changing those systems. And it reminded me of something Shannon Clark of Palantir said on our, our platform not too long ago, which is that, you know, a lot of these transitions can be as a, a much or even more so emotional than they are technical in terms of and I, and I I take it the emotion here might be some certain anxiety that if you underestimate the usefulness life cycle of something then you might be really screwing your future business model so there's that hesitation to kind of like a kind of a hoarder's mentality to kind of keep the data more than it's useful do you run into that problem yes definitely and the interesting thing about it is that sometimes that hoarding of data occurs in these sort of sub pockets of where we end up with sort of shadow IT, right? Because people right. are like, oh, I fixed the data and it looks exactly like I need to drive my AI process or my BI process. And all of a sudden now you've got the shadow IT program that's sitting off to the side where it's like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. We fixed everything and it's in an Excel spreadsheet. So it's really non-maintainable. So mm -hmm. in some ways, not the IT team doesn't even know that that exists in the grand scheme. And, you know, and again, I'm not certainly not faulting anybody that in IT groups, but sometimes it's a, they're not even aware or it takes too long. So really yeah. mastering that agility model is super important to allow this to happen. So you don't end up with the, you know, shadow IT popping up because of the fact that IT can't support their needs fast enough. So it's, it is an interesting, it's an yeah. interesting dilemma, but you really do. And I hate to use the word centralized, but you really do need a cohesive kind of governance strategy that takes into consideration the things that we've been talking about, because without it, then you end up with these pockets of either aging data, useless data, or making right. decisions off of data that's not even really relevant to the business any longer. To what extent are a lot of these choices policy driven by the company versus just necessarily, you know, the most sound data strategy? How much can it be put into a non-technical visual? 
you know, like we we see this in org chart org charts, charters, constitutions, you know, just kind of a written plan that says this goes here ultimately, no matter what the system is giving us in an output, here are our ambitions. And that's usually separate from like kind of the technical infrastructure, just as like the blueprint. How important is it to have those kind of plans or have that idea in a non-technical space, a constitution, if you will? Right. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And and I think I have two answers for it. One, the first answer is really related to, you know, the regulatory environment in which your industry or company works in. So in that case, you have a, a lot of different kinds of data-driven policies that are related to your regulatory compliance standards. And so that one is kind of a you have to do that. The other side is really just focusing on and especially these days where we think a lot about value proposition and the value of information and data. And so, you know, if you do align your your ultimate business strategy to, you know, being smart or using data-driven design decision-making processes, then that actually can be written as a thinking about this culture of innovation, culture of data-driven decision-making. And that really, I think, is where some of these policies come into play, where it's really just focused on understanding the value of data, of accessibility to that information and data, and then just having everybody participate in the overall process. And I, I think this, you know, when I do see organizations with a culture of, of you know, data-driven decision-making, you can really see this take hold yeah. where it's everybody knows where to go to find data. They make decisions based off of the data. There's not speculation in the process. And that's really, that's sort of a, you know, light years ahead of, I think, a lot of organizations that just operate by, you know, gut, if you will. Of course. And we, we've spent a great portion of this program talking a lot about the front door. So it's especially important to keep in mind what, what the end goals are going to be when you're getting started. Carmen, thank you so much for being with us on the program this week. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Wrapping up today's episode, I think the point Carmen made about the fit-to-purpose philosophy strikes a more realistic approach than sometimes what we hear from marketing that advertises cradle-to-the-grave technologies. Nothing against anybody's marketing strategy, and folks using that line are usually selling equally great products, but... But just in talking about the promise, we've seen this in other spaces, most notably crypto or blockchain, where the technology is very real and a very real innovation, but where it gets talked about as being unhackable sets an expectation that I think philosophically outstrips what that technology is bringing to the table in terms of renewed assurance and increased trust between parties. The way Carmen points out to fit to purpose seems to be a little bit less on a life cycle of technology, a little bit more reactionary, but also thinking of the best ways to make sure technology lasts in a meaningful way along with the data inside it. That's it for now. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.